You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the LaFollette School of Public Affairs to interview Professor David Weimer, Professor of Political Economy at the LaFollette School of Public Affairs and with the Department of Political Science here at UW-Madison. Professor Weimer's research focuses broadly on policymaking and institutional design. Although most of his recent research has addressed issues in health policy, he has studied in areas of energy, security, natural resource policy, education, and criminal justice. We will ask him about some of these areas of his teaching and research as well as his recent award-winning article, Monetizing Bowser, a Contingent Valuation of the Statistical Value of Dog Life. So much to talk about, so let's dive right in. First things first, thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Weimer. My pleasure. So since this is the first time that we've had you on 1050 Bascom, We'd like to start by just getting to know you a little bit and inquiring about your background and teaching and research interests. We're curious as to what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying your area of work. Were you like a politics junkie as a kid or maybe did you kind of catch the urge in high school or college? Just what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards public policy, economics, and in particular, public policy and cost-benefit analyses. Okay, so in high school, I really enjoyed both history and my science classes. And my father was a town supervisor, so I was exposed to local politics from a fairly young age. And I received uh, science medals from the University of Rochester and Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. And University of Rochester was closer to where I lived, so I decided to go there. And uh, I'm a first generation college student. And, you know, my sisters studied uh, nursing and teaching, and I decided to study engineering. And I very much enjoyed my engineering classes, but I worked a couple summers in engineering labs. And I thought, you know, I don't think I really want to do this <laughs> for the rest of my life. And uh, so I created a second major, uh, interdepartmental major in urban studies. And that gave me a chance to study uh, uh, some political science, economics, sociology. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. And I had aspirations to go study city planning. And my professors were a little skeptical that that's a, that was a good way to improve the world. And one of my professors, an economist named Rudy Penner, who became later, uh, he was like the second or third director of the Congressional Budget Office. He said, well, he wanted me to go do a PhD in economics. But he said, if you're gonna do one of these applied programs, why don't you look at the applied the, the uh, new public policy program at uh, UC Berkeley. So I did, and I went there and enjoyed it. And very soon I, 
I, I pretty much thought I would like to be a professor. I enjoyed the intellectual life. You know, I went from someone who didn't really understand what happened at universities. And then as an undergraduate, I, I fell in love with what happens at universities. And um, my coursework was mainly in economics and statistics. But I got a job offer back at the University of Rochester in the political science department because they wanted to have public policy. And I have to say, you know, there were three really influential political science departments in the post-war era. You know, there was pluralism at Yale, there was behavioralism at Michigan, and then there was rational choice at Rochester. So I went to Rochester to teach and, and I became a political scientist by doing a 23 year postdoc <laughs> in political science at this very good department. Uh, and uh, along the way, I took some time to, to work in government a bit. And that's how I got to where I am. So I wear two hats, the one directly from my training in graduate school as a policy analyst and then the other, my adopted field of political science. Yeah, we're really interested to hear more about your career and about your research interests. Uh, but before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about, or more accurately, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the kinds of policy analysis you do and kind of what that means, uh, what that okay. means in your profession? Yeah, let me make a distinction between policy analysis and policy research. Much of what I do as a professor, I would call policy research. I reserve the term policy analysis for uh, client-oriented work to inform public decisions and that draws on social values. So as a as a uh, policy researcher, sometimes I'll just look at one aspect of a problem. When I train my students to be policy analysts, and when I work as a policy analyst, then I'm trying to be comprehensive. And there are some differences, right? As a policy researcher, you know, you don't, you don't publish until you have the right data. As a policy analyst, you know, you've got to give advice. So you use whatever, whatever is available. And that's, that's, a, that's a big difference. You know, the timing is, is driven by the decisions rather than by, say, the availability of data. <laughs> I started off doing policy research in the criminal justice area. But then I, I felt the need to branch out a bit. So I took a year off and worked at the Department of Energy. And I worked on energy security issues and had a wonderful experience. And since then, uh, I gradually moved into the health policy area. And along the way, I've done some policy work on unrelated topics. So for example, I'm currently serving on a National Academies of Science committee looking at the use of nuclear sealed sources in the economy and which ones can we replace. And 
So that's something where uh, I'm on the committee because I bring the policy analysis background, but that's client oriented. We're producing it for the Department of Energy. And I was on the, the forerunner to this in 2008, where Congress actually uh, accepted several of our recommendations. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission didn't, but Congress did <laughs> several of them. So, so that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that I uh, I work on. And in the health area, I've done a lot of work on report cards, health report cards. So you know, we uh, gather information about this, the providers of healthcare, and then in one one I studied was the New York State Cardiac Surgery Report, where they collected clinical data on everybody who was going to get bypass surgery. And from that, they could estimate, given your patient's characteristics, how many should die, okay? And then how many actually died? And so we can come up with an index and actually uh, rate individual surgeons in terms of the, the quality of their uh, performance. And that was all very nice research. The harder one is when we moved to nursing homes because now we had many, many measures and it's much noisier. And that's what I've been working on for quite a few years, that and uh, provider networks for health insurance. So, oh, and the organ transplant system as a political scientist. Especially given your very wide background and diverse background in this field and extensive experience, I'm interested in kind of asking what role you think public policy analysis plays in a democratic society. Because as you discuss, it's client-based, but those clients can be private firms. It can be different branches of the, of the federal government, uh, private firms who give the information to the government. So I'm curious as to with all these different clients and all of these different places in which public policy analysis crops up, what do you think is its function in a democratic society? Okay, so we live in a representative government. And the interests that have the loudest voice are those that are concentrated. And what I mean by that is a small number share an interest and those that are organized. And our political system responds very uh, much to those organized and concentrated interests. And sometimes it's being the, our political representatives are fully aware, but other times they're not necessarily aware of the consequences across the board to various sorts of policies. So analysts play a number of roles. Um, one, they try to make sure that all the relevant values are being considered. Then when policies have been proposed, they try to predict the consequences in a, in a more systematic way than most political representatives have time for, okay? Or, or necessarily the expertise for. And come up with new alternatives. You know, can we find something even better to try? And if, if you look at the federal level, there are many, many, many analysts in working in, for Congress, working in the executive branch, working for interest groups, 
advocates across the board. As you move to the state level, there are still many avenues, but fewer. And you're closer to the issues. And then when you move to the local level, um, you may be the only voice, the only analytical voice speaking to an issue. So it's, it's much more likely that you might actually have be able to personally recognize the impact of your analysis uh, on, on an issue. So, um, and, and we have, in the United States, it's ironic, you know, our Congress is so polarized, but the organizations that advise Congress actually are quite neutral in terms of ideology. You know, Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, the Government Accountability Office. They all report to Congress. And all, and all three of them are very, um, um, there's a term out there in the literature, neutral competence. They exhibit neutral competence in the sense of applying the best professional standards to whatever issue they're addressing. Earlier, you alluded uh, kind of in, in your discussion of influential political science departments. Um, to the theory of pluralism, which for our listeners who might not know is the theory that in a democratic society, there will be a bunch of factions who look to control government or influence it, but the competition between them will produce good ideas and good policy that will steer government in a good direction. So I'm wondering, and, and generally our founders, <laughs> thank you, our founders as well theorized that factions are inevitable in a democratically free society. Um, yet the idea of pluralism will prevent them from controlling or completely wielding our democratic government. But my question is, in this era where now it does seem like there is more money fueling the interests of certain factions who are then able to access things like, say, um, specific public policy analyses or uh, a more probably insidiously to people who view this in negative light lobbyists, what do you think is the state of pluralism in the United States right now? Okay, so uh, one point to keep in mind, it's a predictive theory, a descriptive theory. It's not a normative theory, right? And as a uh, descriptive theory, I think you just made the case that it's, <laughs> it still explains a lot, right? Um, now, is that good or bad? Um, uh, well, we just talked about some of the problems of, of, you know, some interests have a louder voice than others, but this intellectually was in contrast to an earlier period where political scientists focused almost exclusively, not exclusively, but very heavily on the instruments of government itself. Indeed, that was uh, something that was emphasized here at the University of Wisconsin, uh, with people like John R. Commons um, in before the war. But after the war, the, the pluralism school, I think, in a sense, created modern political science, set up modern political science. And I'm not sure it was, it wasn't introducing something to the political system, it was simply understanding something was already there. And I think it's gotten for all the things we've, all the reasons we talked about, it's gotten more obvious uh, in, in uh, recent years. So. 
to kind of then pivot a little bit back to talking about public policy analysis, um, I'm interested if you can give us a little quick, uh, maybe a quick lesson in how to analyze public policy analyses, because, you know, we're living in our incredibly loud, rapid era of news, social media, um, what some have labeled the post-truth era, where citizens and sometimes even elective officials are putting out different but sometimes even misleading findings supporting their pre-existing views or agendas. So mm -hmm. as we're all consumers of news reports of public policy, how would you, what tips or pieces of advice would you give us to help maintain a healthy skepticism? Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind, you're more likely to be a consumer of policy research, right? It's you're, you're being exposed to the most recent studies because there are podcasts like this at every university <laughs> trying to promote the research of the faculty, right? The policy analyses are often buried. They're, they're often uh, take the form of reports or even oral presentations that don't necessarily make it out to the public. Um, now, the exceptions, of course, are reports from organizations like the Congressional Budget Office those sorts of organizations that I mentioned. And the other thing to keep in mind is in the American system, uh, the great bulk of substantive policy is made by the regulatory agencies. Congress sets out broad frameworks and then the agencies have to fill in the details. And one of the things that the agencies have to do if they're issuing a major rule, a major something that's going to cost a lot, is they have to do analysis. And that has to be part of the record. Uh, and so in some ways, a lot of the analysis that's done in the federal government is, in a sense, forced on to the agencies by the executive orders that require regulatory impact analyses, which include cost-benefit analysis, actually, usually, or they try. It's not always carried out well, but it's, it's supposed to be there. <laughs> I would say that uh, when you, if you do encounter policy analysis, you go through the usual sorts of questions that you ask to assess the credibility of any particular source. You know, what's the institutional base? Do they have an incentive to provide neutrally competent analysis. Um, if they have a position, if, they, if there's a component of advocacy, then uh, expect a slant. Now the slant might be considering some impacts, maybe even very professionally, but ignoring others, okay? And one of the jobs of the analyst is to make sure we consider all the impacts. Thank you for that advice. But now we'd like to move into some more specific topics and some of your own research. Um, okay. Now, full disclosure, I am a total dog person. So, <laughs> so naturally, I was, I was mesmerized by uh, your co-authored article, Monetizing Bowser, a Contingent Valuation of the Statistical Value of Dog Life, that actually won the best original article in the Journal of Cost-Benefit Analysis. Um, could you just start by telling us 
just kind of about this research in general and the genesis okay. of the research question examining the statistical value of a dog's life? Sure, sure. So I'm one of the founding members of the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis. And we have our annual meeting in Washington, DC. And it's about half government economists and about half academic economists and others. And a number of years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, I was at the meetings and I was having breakfast with the person who was at the time was chief economist for the Food and Drug Administration. And I don't know if you remember, but a number of years ago, there was a problem with adulterated dog food that um, the, uh, the imports from, uh, of the ingredients from China had been adulterated and many, many dogs died. So Congress uh, gave the Food and Drug Administration more authority to regulate pet food, but they had to issue the regulations. And this economist was bemoaning the fact that he had a way of valuing changes in human mortality, but he didn't, he didn't have any way of valuing changes in canine mortality. And, and so the benefits that they cited in the supporting analysis for their rules basically said, well, the benefits were that the salmonella that sometimes is in dog food and gets picked up by humans uh, that will be reduced, so there'll be fewer, less human uh, morbidity, okay? And I said, well, what you really need is a, the equivalent of the statistical value of life for dogs, right? And he says, yes, that would be great. And I said, you want to give me a grant to do that? I'll do it with a contingent valuation study. And as I, I wrote somewhere, he had nothing for us but praise, nothing for the project but praise. And so I looked around, I kept trying to find someone to fund it. And then finally, I, I gave up and used uh, money that was left in my professorship to fund this, because I thought it was both interesting and important. Uh, so uh, I got together with some former students, um, two of them from UW here, uh, who were PhD students in political science. and two of my former students from Rochester who do a lot of survey research. And I've worked with them in the past on projects. And uh, we had a ball designing this study. Um, so here's the idea. Um, if, you were, if we want to value how people are trading off mortality risk for something like for money, okay? We can look at things like employment. Do riskier jobs command, other things equal, command higher wages? And they do, okay? And so you can back out, if someone accepts that job, you can back out the implicit value they're placing on their own life. And that's what economists refer to, it's a terrible name, it causes all kinds of problems the value of statistical life, okay? Because really what it is, is how they're valuing small changes in mortality risk. And then from that, we back out the implicit value of a life, say the average for the US population. 
And so that if a regulation were to save three lives, we would bet that we would uh, monetize that by multiplying those three avoided deaths by the value of statistical life. Okay. Well, some of our dogs work, but they don't work for salary. <laughs> so we, we can't do that. So what we have to do is uh, actually see how much keepers are willing to pay to reduce mortality risk to their dogs, okay? So the, there's a technique, technique called contingent valuation. Um, if you've taken a political science course, you probably have come into contact with what are called survey experiments, you know, where you, you conduct an experiment, but it's with survey respondents. This is, this is popular in political science for about the last 10 years, but environmental economists have been, doing this, have been doing this for about 30 or 40 years. So there's a lot of craft developed in how to get reliable answers about people's valuation of things that aren't valued in the marketplace. And the way we did it is we constructed a scenario that said, imagine there's going to be a canine influenza and that your dog would face over the next year, I think we used a 12% risk in death, okay? And then we offer them a vaccine that would prevent or reduce the risk from 12% to 2%. Usually you don't want to go all the way down to zero. There's some funny things that happen between certain things and, and, and uncertain things. And then we randomly gave each respondent a dollar amount, a price. And they either accepted it, said they would accept it or not. And we have, therefore, we have a pattern of acceptances over the population of respondents. And from that, we can statistically back out an average uh, willingness to pay for the reduction. And from that average willingness to pay, we can then further back out the implicit value the average person is putting on their dog, okay? Now, the thing you have to keep in mind, this is not if your dog faced death, how much would you pay? This is in a statistical sense, right? It's like, you know, uh, you could probably reduce the risk that your grandmother would fall by putting railings in her house, right? A lot of people, many, most people don't do that. However, once grandma falls and is in the hospital, you'll pay anything to, to save her, right? So it's the same thing with, with pets, right? We're valuing reductions in risk because we want to apply it to things like uh, safer pet food, okay? And uh, one, of the, one of the things that was really fun was we asked, one of the first questions in the survey asked people the name of their dog. So that when we asked them, we weren't saying about your dog, we were saying, you know, uh, imagine Max is exposed to, and one of the things that allowed us to do 
is we could, we could compare the distribution of names in our sample to the distribution of uh, names reported by the dog walking services and the dog insurance, health insurance services. So, and then you do other things. So for example, you wanna make sure this is really an economic decision. So you, you have what's called a scope test where instead of having a vaccine that would reduce it to 2%, it only reduces it say to 6%. And you can also have a qualitative scope. So in the base scenario, we didn't say anything about whether or not the dog would suffer, but we had a split in the, in the sample where you say, well, the dog would suffer before it died. And you expect a higher willingness to pay then than when the dog doesn't suffer. And of course, it's hard to get people to think about risks. So one of the things we did is show them a, a matrix of a of 100 dots with, in the first case, 88 green dots for being safe and 12 red dots for, being, uh, for getting the influenza. And then we put that next to the one with only two red dots that would be relevant after the vaccine. So th that's, that's, what, um, <laughs> that's what it was about. Do you have any follow-up questions? Yeah, I have so many. Um, I could talk about, I feel like I could talk about this all day, but so what's striking to me about it is the really interesting research methodology of it and the questions of it, especially asking the names of the dogs and showing the matrix, like, I'm in a I'm in a public opinion course right now in the J school and you know I've taken the survey methodology courses in the political science department so it's really interesting to hear about a survey where you are or it seems like you're trying to you know elicit some responses you know by asking the name of the dog or you know you're measuring maybe some responses of that yeah we're we're trying to make it as real as possible right in in this case uh it's probably not as big a burden as it is when we're trying to get people to value something like cleaner air in the Grand Canyon, okay? That's the sort of classic type of contingent valuation that economists use because they have no other way of, of putting a value on that cleaner air. Um, but as I said, this has been done for 30, 40 years, including some of it was pioneered by some agricultural economists here at UW, an economist named Richard Bishop. Um, but uh, so, and the stakes have often been high. So this method was, one of the first times this method was, was used uh, very publicly was to assess damages after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. You guys are a little young for that, but uh, an oil tanker broke up on, on the coast of Alaska and how do you assess the damage? And the uh, environmental groups thought the damage was much larger than simply the loss in fishing revenue, okay? And as a consequence, both sides hired a lot of economists to criticize and improve this method. And it even resulted in a blue ribbon panel uh, publishing an assessment of the method saying method could be used. 
um, that included like three or four Nobel laureates. It was actually published in the Federal Register by the uh, uh, National Atmospheric, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, so I guess my point is the stakes have been high and we want a number. We want an economically valid number because we want to use it in our cost benefit analysis. So uh, the craft has really um, moved quite far along. Uh, it's been one of the exciting things I've observed over my, my career, how, how it's gone from something that was uh, well, a little questionable to something that now that's used quite regularly. Absolutely. What are some of the major takeaways that, that we can, or that you discuss maybe in your analysis of the research that you have conducted now? Um, I imagine it can maybe be applied to, you know, actually, I don't even know what imagine. Can you talk about the, like some of the takeaways then? I, I want to make a commercial pitch. If there are any cat lovers out there who would like to have this done for cats and you're willing to pony up a chunk of money for a survey, let me know. I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, let me do, can I say something about why I think it's important to teach and do benefit cost analysis? This is, this is one way of monetizing benefits in a, in a benefit cost. And this goes back to our earlier discussion about uh, who has a voice in representative government. And in some ways, economic efficiency doesn't have a voice, right? I mean, the, yeah, uh, think about classic examples like um, sugar quotas, okay? Now, maybe this changes now that we don't think sugar is very good. But we, we, since colonial times, we've had import uh, restrictions on sugar to keep sugar prices high enough in the United States so it makes sense to grow sugar cane, actually, or sugar beets or whatever. Well, basic economic theory tells you the benefits that the sugar growers get are far exceeded by the cost to consumers, okay? Now, what benefit cost analysis does is try to add up all those costs and all those benefits and be comprehensive. It's hard, you can't always be comprehensive, but one of the reasons I like teaching it is that it pushes students to, to, to try to be comprehensive and be, sometimes they have to be very clever in how they come up with estimates. So um, I very much think that this is a very worthwhile thing to try to do. Uh, estimate, the allocative efficiency of policies doesn't mean we make our choice necessarily just on the basis of allocative efficiency, but at least we take account of it. And then we'll trade it off with other values, distributional values or political feasibility values or whatever else we think is relevant. All right, enough keeping our audience in suspense. What did you estimate for the contingent <laughs> value of a statistical dog's life? I can't keep them in suspense any longer. Okay. Well, let me first say that most of the evidence on the VSL, the value statistical life for humans in the United States is about $10 million. If you look at what regulatory agencies use, 
most of them use something close to $10 million. The estimate we came up with for Bowser was rounding a bit about $10,000. That is, based on our study, it appears that on average, people are making decisions about relevant to the mortality risk to their dogs as if they are valuing their dogs at about $10,000. So that's how to, that's how to interpret it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Mom and dad, if you're listening, give the pups some love for me. They're, <laughs> they're worth more than 10,000 in my heart, but to my wallet, yes. that's a tough, that's a tough it, decision. It, exactly. But we'll see when you have your dog, your own dog, do you get all the vaccinations? Do you buy the highest quality dog food? Do you, you know, all those things. Do you, do you make sure your dog gets the right amount of exercise? All those things are relevant to mortality risk and they're costly to you in some way. And you have to make trade-offs. Kind of turning now back to looking at cost benefit analyses. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how we can apply cost benefit analysis to uh the pandemic like the the nation's reaction to the benefit or to the pandemic our nation the cost benefit analysis i guess of some of the legislation that uh we've seen come through the congress and onto the president's desk yeah so one thing to think about is usually we do cost benefit analysis to inform the decision. Sometimes we do benefit cost analysis sort of ex post to see what actually materialized, but we use it to uh, inform policy. To, to make, to do the benefit cost analysis, we have to make predictions which have uncertainties. We have to monetize. Now, increasingly we have what are called shadow prices, like the VSDL that we offered um, to value, but there are a lot of uncertainties. And so when we do benefit cost on any interesting problem, we do it in the context of, of what's called Monte Carlo analysis, where we specify distributions for all the parameters draw values from those distributions, calculate a net benefit, and then do it again and again and again and again. So we end up with a distribution that reflects the, the uncertainties in the various parameters. So that's sort of what we're doing. In terms of the, the current COVID situation, you would try to identify all the impacts of a, of a relevant policy. So you, you do um, a, a stay-at-home policy, right? You, you, you would have to predict how many lives would be saved. You'd have to predict the opportunity cost of not going to work or putting the kids in school or whatever. And each of those things, we would have ways of, of trying to monetize. And that would give you an answer about what is economically efficient doesn't necessarily lead you to, the, to a clear choice, right? Because there may be other values. Uh, I mean, obviously the one that seems a bit 
abused is this idea of freedom, freedom of choice. Uh, I, I guess I can understand it a little bit with respect to, to uh, being uh, locked in place, but I, I do have trouble understanding it with respect to face masks. But in any event, there are other values come into play and you trade off, you, 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 at least you can identify the trade-offs between uh, the efficiency of policies and some other value, you know, individual freedom or whatever you're, you're considering. Obviously, the, the, in some ways, the more clearly defined the issue, the better, because you have to have a very concrete policy to analyze. It can't be abstract. It has to be something very specific. And uh, so that's, a, that's something to keep in mind. Um, the other thing I would say is because of the way our government is organized with bureaus with different areas of responsibility, there's often a sort of stove piping that goes on that organizations don't consider impacts beyond their portfolio, okay? What uh, cost-benefit analysis does is tell you to look for all the impacts, okay? So, um, and, and I would say that one area where cost-benefit analysis has been very influential in recent years has been criminal justice because the, the, the social costs of crime show up in a lot of different ways. And when you monetize it, um, you, you can get pretty big numbers very quickly. And if you start thinking about the consequences of various sorts of punishment, you know, are you making it more likely someone's going to come out of prison and commit crimes because they have, you know, fewer economic opportunities? Well, you know, you may be, it may be counterproductive. But in the criminal justice area, you've seen both conservatives and liberals move toward trying to reduce prison populations, trying to divert people from prison, trying to intervene before they go to prison. And I think that's been very positive and that's been supported. I wouldn't say it's caused by, but it's been supported by a lot of benefit cost analyses that, that show the costs of not doing smart things. <laughs> and as we're starting to run low on time here, we wanna make sure that we ask you what we should have talked about today. Is there anything that we haven't touched on during this interview that you feel like we should have asked you or that you feel like our listeners really need to know? If you're in the La Follette School, you would take, there's a good chance you would take my benefit cost course and about a third of each class takes my policy analysis course. In political science, um, Unfortunately for undergraduate, well, maybe fortunately or unfortunately for undergraduates, a lot of my teaching is the me graduate methods. So, but occasionally I teach uh, a course on policy analysis or as of la last, la as last fall, a uh, course strategy and choice that looks at um, uh, how to be strategic and thinking about getting what you want out <laughs> of the political system. So I would, if I do have a chance to teach that course again, I'll welcome our majors, any majors. 
the last thing that we like to talk about with our guests is what have you been hopeful about? You know, it's been a long year, a very, very yeah. long year. What have you been hopeful about? I've, I've been hopeful about the vaccine. I, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think we'll be back to near normal on campus in the fall. Okay, I'll, I hope I'll, so. <laughs> we'll, I'll take optimism over the alternative any day. Any day. By the way, so thank there you. was one topic you didn't ask me about, but for many years I've been studying the organ transplant system, the governance of the system, and uh, in particular, uh, from, a, from the perspective of a political scientist, you know, what, how does it make decisions? And it's a very transparent system. So when I first stud studied it, I could go to their meetings, which were often held at the, uh, uh, the hotel at O'Hare Airport. <laughs> so I could take the bus to go do my field research. But, um, I, and I wrote a book a number of years ago on the governance, but since then, there've been a couple major changes in organ allocation rules. And about five years ago, I did a reading course with an undergraduate, uh, Laura Wilkes, that resulted in a published academic paper on the new uh, kidney allocation rules at the time. And I just had a paper accepted with uh, another undergraduate, Logan Moore, on the new liver allocation rules that have been accepted. So, I think that shows that in our department, there are ways for undergraduates to get involved in research and actually uh, see it all the way through the process. My pleasure, thanks. Thank you very much. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.